Hey, I'm Kyle Yates from Orlando, Florida, and I'm a product manager. I love listening to Compelled because I deeply appreciate the way the team at Compelled brings to life stories of God working in people's lives. Ranging from more serious topics to my latest listen about the author of the series, Hank the Cowdog, which was a childhood favorite of mine, Compelled continues to capture significant moments in people's life stories in upbeat, heartfelt ways. Enjoy today's episode. We learned that the secret to courage is first recognizing your inner coward and then allowing the Holy Spirit to unleash your inner lion. Like God had to get us to a point where we recognize that we are just cowards and apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. I'm Paul Hastings and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for him. Last week, we heard from Virginia Prodan, an attorney from communist Romania who angered the government after she began defending Christians in court from the communist regime. Eventually, the Romanian president sent an assassin to kill her at her office one evening. Virginia was alone and unprotected, but what happened next was unthinkable. If you haven't heard that story yet or the incredible conclusion, then go to our website and pull up last week's episode with Virginia Prodan. This week, our guests are Jason and David Benham, also known as the Benham Brothers, identical twins who, among other things, are real estate entrepreneurs and former professional baseball players. But perhaps they are best known for being forced to make a decision between either being removed as hosts of a national reality TV show or renouncing their beliefs in God's design for marriage. That story coming up right after word from our sponsors. Throughout our history, American pastors and churches have played a vital role in the establishment and preservation of religious and civil liberty. Being salt and light requires knowledge of our culture as we fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples of all nations. Being a biblical citizen requires knowledge of biblical principles and how to apply them to the world around us. You and your church can be a catalyst for restoring biblical values in your neighborhood, state, and the nation. My friends at biblicalcitizens.com sat down with pastors and other Christian leaders around the nation who are engaged in today's cultural battles. They've specifically designed a tool for churches and individuals that's easy to use, captivating, and impactful. You'll learn how the founders relied on their Christian moorings and biblical worldview to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And you'll be treated to thought-provoking historical facts and inspirational true stories that are not taught in our educational institutions today. But ultimately, you'll be edified and equipped to embrace your faith and practice biblical citizenship in modern America. Ready to get started? Go to biblicalcitizens.com to sign up and get free access for you and your church. Again, that's biblicalcitizens.com. I met with David and Jason at their real estate office in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they invited me to join them at their Bible study earlier that morning, and I was struck by how down-to-earth they were. As identical twins, they look exactly like each other, but I wasn't prepared for how similar they are in personality as well. Both of them love to joke, are highly competitive, and they enjoy giving each other a hard time. They've shared a lot of things with each other, including the same love of sports, the same career paths, and as you'll hear in today's story, many of the same choices between following the world or following God. 
Jason and I, we uh, we were born in Orlando, Florida, 1975. And our dad at the time was a, a drunken saloon owner. He owned the Mad Hatter Saloon in Orlando, Florida, and had been an alcoholic for years. As a matter of fact, the night we were born, he was passed out drunk on the waiting room floor. And uh, we had an older sister who was three at the time. And uh, about when we were three or four months old, my dad came home drunk one night and uh, had done some pretty foolish things and got really upset. And my mom said, that's it. I'm leaving. And he sobered up quick and said, what's it going to take to keep you? And she said, you've got to go to church. And so we went to a little free Methodist church in Orlando, Florida, and he heard the gospel for the first time. And uh, in his testimony, he says that it was as if Jesus had pulled the roof off of that little white steepled church house, you know, little bitty wooden church house. And uh, he said, and stepped into his heart. And he, he was crying so hard that he had my mom drive home that day, and he walked home. And on that walk, he surrendered to full-time ministry. He knew he needed to sell the saloon. I mean, this was radical salvation. He never touched a drop of alcohol from that day forward. So he decided I was going to be a pastor. He sold the saloon and paid for seminary in Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. So he studied to become a pastor. And then our earliest childhood memories were when we moved from Kentucky to Dallas, Texas. We were five years old. Yeah. So now in the summer of 1980, we are in Dallas, Texas. We arrived there on the hottest day of the year. It was 112, 120, wow. something like some crazy. It was the hottest day uh, that they had had in uh, four or five decades. And we get there and we started a, a church in our home. So right there on our little house, 621 Dawn Drive in Garland, Texas, we started our church. We had six people that first Sunday, mom and dad, Jason and me, and our sister Tracy and then our neighbor Pat showed up. Wow. So that was a big Sunday. We wow. were we were door greeters. Nice, nice. So so let's go into the dynamic of being twins for a second. Well, my mom did dress David in blue and me in green. So there was a little cheese ball action going for a while. Yeah. But we stopped that by the time we got into kindergarten. Um, but it was true that there were some weird things, you know, like um, we always felt the same thing at the same time with certain things. Like, really? okay, so when it was time to use the bathroom, we always had to go to the bathroom at the exact same time and always fought over the exact same bathroom. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Little things like that. Yeah. It was just always um, had the same tastes and everything, but our dad just loved the sport of boxing. So for him, it was really fun to have twins because he'd get us boxing gloves and we'd be sitting there wailing on each other in the living room and he'd just be watching. He's like, wow. Jason, put your guard up. He's like, David, get your jab through his guard. So he's like coaching both of us against each other. Oh, man. Oh, man, it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, and of course, we did play some some pranks on people. David went out with this girl in college. This one time he took her on a date one night and the next day she was sitting in the cafeteria and uh, at college and so i went and just sat next to her and she didn't realize that that i was a twin brother that i was the the jason she, well she knew we were he had a twin but she didn't know that i wasn't david oh wow and i noticed that she was looking at me i, I, I oh, always joke on. i joke this that she was just looking at me and i could tell she was falling in love <laughs> and then i had to break the news that i was his brother come on and then everything changed she's like oh yeah because i didn't like that guy last night Whoa. she actually didn't say that okay but, Anyway, yeah, so we, we, we played all those tricks and had the fun with being a twin. While there were definitely lots of opportunities to play pranks, so confusion and all of the other fun things that you could do as an identical twin, 
There were also many moments of deep introspection as they grew up. Early on in their childhood, their father Philip, the Reformed saloon owner, became very active in proclaiming the kingdom of Christ in every arena of life. So when 7-Eleven began selling pornographic magazines in Dallas, he spoke out publicly and would bring his sons along. Eventually, he became the national director of Operation Rescue, one of the largest movements in the 1980s fighting to end abortion. And there were multiple times when their dad was physically assaulted by police officers right outside of abortion clinics, with both of his sons watching. It was moments like these and others that left a deep impression on Jason and David. All throughout elementary school, middle school, and high school, they realized that every day they would be forced to make a choice just like their dad. Would they take the easy route by turning away from God's calling and pursuing the world's acceptance, or would they reject the world and pursue Christ? For both of them, their most important decision came at age 12. I, Jason, was in a uh, chapel service at our Christian school. We had chapel services every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they had a they had a revivalist in. I think his name was Randy Pope, was his name, and he was preaching. And I remember the maroon uh, pews and the maroon carpet, straight up Baptist, as Baptist as you can get. Yeah. And I just, I, I had met the Lord early, like when I was five or six, but I didn't really remember it. And it was kind of one of those things where I was in there and he was, had the church, the, he preached a great message. And I was like, you know what? I just want to make for a hundred percent sure. Yeah. So I did, I, I prayed to receive Jesus. I went down to the altar and was like, okay, from this day forward. And I, you know, I started reading through the New Testament. But when people asked me when I got saved, I probably got saved when I was five or six. But really, the count it was when I was twelve years old. Yeah, same, same with me. I was that same year. Um, we went to a uh, youth camp, and Ken Freeman was speaking. And I'll never forget. I would. Jason remembers his scene, and I'm sure my scene was before his. I'm sure he just followed in the wake. After, after I got saved, I'm sure then it happened with Jason. But um, I can't remember those details, but I was looking at the concrete floor in a little youth camp in Bastrop, Texas, and the Ken Freeman gave an altar call, and I, oh man, I was just feeling the conviction of my guilt, and and I just and he God had right a lot there. to be guilty. Of. I was, I was, yeah. I was yeah. sitting in my chair, hands or head in my hands tears splattering on the floor wow. and that's when i prayed and received christ and and it was from that day forward that i chose all right lord i'm gonna follow you yeah yeah you know that's really intriguing i i had a similar experience myself actually i was five years old made a profession of faith mm -hmm. it was mainly about the fear of going We're, to hell sure yeah i didn't want to burn forever exactly exactly <laughs> but when i was 12 years old that was the first time i went to awana camp and yeah. i was like separated from my family and it was just this moment where i could really like, do I believe this for myself or mm. do I believe it just because my folks do? And so mm. I can really identify cool. with that. Actually. That's good. Let's go through your high school careers. Kind of, I know that you okay. guys got involved in sports. Why yes. don't we talk about we that? We did. We were in junior high school uh, in the, well, I think we were eighth in the grade. eighth grade. Yeah, we got featured in Sports Illustrated, Faces in the Crowd. We were football players and basketball players. Of course, we played baseball as well, but in Sports Illustrated, they featured, featured us for football and basketball. So by the time we got to high school, most every senior guy there was extremely jealous. They didn't like us too much, but we happened to take a lot of their spots in, in, uh -huh. in basketball and football, which it's fun to think back how important that was to us yeah. at that time. You know, we're like, we're going to go up there. We're going to get starting spots on the football team and the basketball team and baseball. And, and so and that's where, by the way, that's where our work ethic really developed was 
between eighth and ninth grade, we recognized, okay, we want to go up and we want to earn spots on the varsity teams on all the sports that we played. So we were getting recruited for basketball, football, and baseball. But then by the time we were juniors, we realized baseball is where we could probably play professionally. So we we really began to focus on baseball. And then David was drafted by the Mets after senior year of high school. I wasn't, but we both signed to play baseball at Liberty because we always wanted to play Division One baseball. But we didn't want to go to a secular university. We wanted to go to a Christian school. My dad had first discovered them when he was sitting in jail. In jail? Yeah. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, he was. I mean, of course, he was the national director for Operation Rescue. And um, and he he was a large, pro, large pro-life organization. And this is back in the days when they used to sit in front of doors and stuff. And he's sitting in front of a door. He gets put in jail. And while he's in jail, the old-time gospel hour came on. David and I were entering our senior year of high school. And uh, Dad knew that he was not going to be able to afford college. So he started praying that God would give us full-ride scholarships to play baseball. And when he saw Jerry Falwell on the old-time gospel hour, he started talking about their baseball team and how they had made it to a regional tournament. And and their athletic program was Division One. Dad said right then and there he prayed that David and I would get scholarships to play at Liberty. Right in the jail cell floor. Right there on the jail cell floor. That's exactly right. And we had no idea how that was going to happen. I mean, Liberty's in Lynchburg, Virginia. We were in Dallas, Texas, and this is before – I mean, Internet existed then, but it wasn't like – you know, it wasn't connected like it is today. Yeah. And so there's no way that Liberty would really hear much about us. Our tiny little high school, Garland Christian Academy, we didn't even have a baseball field. We practiced in the corner of an end zone and we played an all-away schedule. And so our dad began to pray that we'd get that scholarship, but of course, how are they going to find us? Yeah. And GCA was open to homeschool students to come and play on their sports teams. And so this homeschooler came and joined our baseball team. And he was actually pretty good. And his dad was a pastor of a Presbyterian church. And uh, he would come to every single practice and then our games. And we didn't realize he was a bird dog scout for one of the one of the major league teams. I forget who. And uh, he had done some of that scouting work. And he said, look, you guys are really good. But, you know, nobody knows about you. And uh, we're like, well, you know, God, God will get us where he wants us to go. He's like, where do you want to go to school? We said, our dream would be to play at Liberty University. And he said, you know what, let me, let me get to work on that. And so he, behind the scenes, we didn't realize it was happening at the time. Um, he wrote a letter to the baseball coach at Liberty, and I, st- I still have the letter today. Right. Yeah. And he basically said, look, I know that you don't recruit in Texas, you know, but you've got to understand there are two dynamic Christian young men who would be leaders on your team instantly and who already have enough talent to be playing low-A baseball, you know, which is minor league baseball, professionally right now. He said, these guys would be great assets to your team. Well, it got the attention of the coach, and uh, Liberty flew out to watch us play. And when they did, they sat us down in our living room and offered, offered us two full-ride scholarships. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was wow. crazy. So was God's, God. God's plan was kicked into gear that way. Man, that is awesome. That's so really so cool. often we don't realize, I mean, we think God's going to use like the, the people in our minds that we think are the big successful mm-hmm. ones are in the right place. But then the Lord will take people that are seemingly so insignificant in the world's size, or yeah. at least their position when it came to sports was insignificant and uh, and just blows our minds. Yeah. And you can see like so many like factors at play, like this was a homeschool dad, 
right? Like the fact that your school even allowed homeschoolers to play at your school. I mean, if the of all everything moved that, together. Yeah, that's and right. he was a preacher and a professor and like wrote books and was very cerebral and had nothing in common with us, not even in the least, except for a love for baseball. That is, so and he crazy. the whole time he's watching and he's thinking about, you know, how good we were and how he's going to help us get to the next level. And we had no clue it was happening in his yeah. mind, you yeah. know? So God, God worked it all out. For four years, the brothers made strides playing baseball at Liberty University, making many great friendships and memories. But one of their most memorable experiences, especially for Jason, happened a few weeks after they graduated. It was a moment when Jason would have to make a choice whether to give God the glory or not. But the circumstances were not what you might think. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing, even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which, if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing, ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Recently, my family has been enjoying Redeem TV. They're a Christian streaming service that's ad-free and fee-free with over a quarter million subscribers spread throughout the world. We love their wide selection of movies, documentaries, and children's programming. And their library of edifying titles is always growing and is sure to have something for you. For your next family movie night, I encourage you to visit redeemtv.com or download one of their apps to your device or smart TV and start streaming goodness wherever you go. And don't forget, they have no fees and no ads. Get started at redeemtv.com. So our goal when we got to Liberty was to get Liberty to a regional tournament, which would put us in the top 50 teams, top 48 teams in the nation, and and to actually win a game. Liberty had made it. They had 17 or 18 Division I sports by the time we got there in 1994. And uh, several of their sports uh, had made it to the regional tournaments, the NCAA regional tournaments, but not not any sport, not golf, not track, not soccer, anything had actually won anything Ooh, ouch. in those tournaments. Because, I mean, Liberty was such a brand new school. Yeah. We were brand new to – we were 25 years old and we're brand new to Division I sports. So our goal was to get Liberty, get the baseball team to the regional tournament before we graduated and to actually win one game. We won our conference tournament. We got to go to the Florida State regional tournament and uh, double elimination tournament. We lost to Florida State that first night, but the next night, the next day, actually, we were playing against Auburn. It was the top of the ninth inning. Auburn was up to bat. They had a runner on second. 
And uh, all we had to do was get one runner out or get this next hitter out, go into the dugout, you know, come up to bat and in bottom of the night, find a way to manufacture a run. And we, we accomplished our goal. Because you guys were tied at that point. Yeah, we were tied two to two. And so it was two to two, top of the ninth. Auburn was up to bat, two outs, runner on second. They hit a slow rolling ground ball to me at third base. And I let it go right through my legs. Yeah. And the guy scored. We're down three to two. We got the next guy out. And as I was running back into the dugout, I started to do the math in my head and realized if we can find a way to get three runners on, runners on first, second, third, and we had two outs, I'd be coming up to the plate. So I prayed and asked God to make that happen. And sure enough, he did. I walked up to the plate. I was praying out loud. And I happened to be one of the best hitters in the nation that year. So they, everybody in the stands knew I was going to come through. And I just knew that God was going to allow me to come through. I just knew it because he was setting up that story because he'd been so faithful you know, all year and to get us to Liberty and all that miraculous stuff that he had done. And yet I hit a slow rolling ground ball to the second baseman who grabbed it, stepped on second base, and the game was over. Not only did I fail my team once, I failed twice when they needed me the most. After the game, I went to the press conference and they asked me to tell them about the ground ball. And there's a lot of reporters in there. And I said, you know, I mean, I failed my team miserably today, but Jesus Christ is still on the throne and I still serve him and he's still a good God. And one day I'm going to have a son who's going to be playing at a baseball game and I'm going to be able to go up to him if he makes an error and say, you know, it's okay, buddy. God still loves you and has a plan for your life. Your dad made an error in the biggest game of his life, but God is still good. Mm. And and so, of course, they didn't ask me any more questions. And a couple of days later, I got a, a phone call from a buddy of mine who actually lived in Tallahassee. He said, man, did you see the front page of the sports section of the Tallahassee Gazette? I think that's what, the, what it was called. I said, no. He said, well, there's this very liberal atheist sports writer there who hates everything about God, um, who actually wrote an article on you. I was like, okay, we'll send it over. So he faxed it over. You know, this is, yeah. We really didn't do a whole lot of email and stuff back then. And um, I read it, and essentially the article said, you know, I've always hated how sports athletes, especially like boxers, bring God into their sport after they beat the pulp out of somebody, and then they say, you know, God you know, gave me the victory and I give him the credit as if God himself were fighting in the ring. And I really hate it when the football players pray in the middle of the football field together with the other team after the game, as if God really cares about sports. He's like, I've never felt like God concerned himself with sports and was always particularly agitated that the only time you hear God is when somebody wins. Yeah. He said, but all of that has changed after I heard a guy named Jason Benham who played at Liberty University when I saw him the other day fail his team when they needed him the most, his team lost, but he stood there in front of all these reporters and he gave God praise in the midst of his defeat. And now I'm beginning to question whether or not God really does care about sports. Wow. In that moment, I knew that my defeat turned into a victory for Christianity. It's like God had to make me look like an idiot so that he can look like a hero. Yeah. And... And that story I still tell to this day to just show people like God is going to be glorified in your life if you just let him, and he'll do it in your victories and your defeats. It looked like Jesus was defeated when he was walking up that hill with a tree on his back, Yeah, but he was winning every step of the way. I didn't realize that I had walked into that same exact type situation, but I did, and now I'm telling you the story.
Yeah. And thousands of people hearing that right now. That's right. That's right. That's awesome. That's awesome. So walk us through after that game. Okay. What happened in y'all's careers? Well, at that now point? it's back to David after Jason's epic failure. No, we see how <laughs> God uses our failures to glorify Himself. Um, we both got drafted. I was drafted by the Red Sox. Jason was drafted by the Orioles. Um, I had already been engaged before. Let's see, uh, April of that year, and the draft was in June. Jason's uh, Jason and I we played Auburn in May, so it was April got engaged. May, we both graduated from college and then played in the regional tournament. And then in June, we both got drafted and we went on to play. I got married that same year in September. And so um, we played several seasons in the minor leagues, uh, never made it to the big leagues. We had to learn that when God gives you something, you have to hold it with an open hand. Because, you know, if we grip it with white-knuckled tenacity, it always hurts when he has to peel our fingers back in order to yeah. take that away to put something else there. Yeah. It, whether that be a relationship or even a job or maybe a, a promise that you know God has given you or a dream that you have in your heart, we tell people, like we mentioned in our first book, what it means to die to a dream. And dying to a dream is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. What that means is that you pursue your dreams with your hands and your feet. So you're diligent, you're disciplined, you're determined, you're, you're pursuing that, but you stay dead to it in your heart. In other words, you leave the results to God. And we learned that the hard way with baseball because it was hard. We, we thought God was going to use us with a major platform of big league baseball, and yet we never accomplished that dream. Yeah, God took it away. I mean, it was gone. I mean, both of us played. We ended up writing another book called Miracle in Shreveport, which talks about both of our times in St. Louis. We actually both finished with the St. Louis Cardinals. At the same time. At the exact same time, which is a miracle of, of how it worked. But that book explains that whole story. Um, but anyway, so we got out of baseball, and we didn't know what we were going to do. So we got our real estate licenses, and now... I, I, David, I'm married to Lori. We had two boys at the time. I had a two-year-old and a newborn. Jason's wife, he had married Tori a few years after I married Lori. He marries Tori, which I know people are like, Tori, Lori, that's crazy. <laughs> we did not mean that. But uh, and they were already pregnant with their first, and now here it was, 2002, we're living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And by this time now, we're 26 years old. We had given our hearts to Christ at 12, but we had been reading through the New Testament every year, kind of like a little routine that we had every day, and we would get through the New Testament in a year, and we would finish from 12 to 18, we had finished the Bible, uh, let's see, that was about five times, actually, it's not six, it's five. And then when we went to Liberty, we committed we were going to read through the whole Bible every year. So now here we are, 26. So from 18 to 26, we had eight years in Scripture with no business training but a lot of Bible in us. We had tons of biblical principles, so our company took off. Here we started in 2003. By 2007, we were one of the largest single offices in the state. And then by two, so we started a franchise in 2007. By 2010, we had 100 offices across 35 states. So it was huge. So we were really doing well, and, and we were actually exercising biblical principles in the marketplace, and we were making disciples. And that's when the Lord kind of turned that light on in our head, because we had always kind of have felt that nagging feeling of we should be in full-time ministry. Yeah. And... Then one day, Jason and I both, we, you know, we prayed, we also fasted as a company, and we were training our employees and doing discipleship and had our Bibles open as we were building our company and all these other things. And it just dawned on us one day, like God said to Adam in the garden, who told you you were naked? 
You know, like, who told you you're naked? In other words, who told you, speaking to my brother and I's heart, who told you you're not in full-time ministry? You know, where you're placed and how you're paid does not determine ministry. The root word is to serve. Hmm. So if I'm serving people for the glory of the Lord, I'm a minister of God. The Holy Spirit is inside of me. I've got Jesus in me. It's just my context is different. I'm not paid by the church and placed behind a pulpit, but I'm paid by my own work in the marketplace and I'm placed in a boardroom, then that's still full-time ministry. Placement and payment does not determine ministry. Yeah. Uh, and while at the same time, it doesn't minimize vocational ministry, the men of God that need to be placed and paid in the context of a church gathering. Thank you, God, for them. But for us, the Lord was speaking to us, I'm, you're a full-time minister yeah. right where you are. Yeah. So that was an identity that Jason and I, really the Lord gave to us early in our business was, you are a minister, you're on mission, and your work is worship. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6 tells us, the Lord is teaching us in Scripture, all of our work is to be done as unto the Lord, Yeah, knowing that whatever good we do, it will be received to us back from the Lord. Imagine in the marketplace now, a boss has a Christian employee that is bringing so much value to him and working so faithfully and is loyal and going the second mile, and he's a fountain, not a drain, faithful in the little things. What do you think that guy's going to say? Like, wow, I want a million more of you. You know, and what is it about you? Well, I'm at Jesus Christ. I have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me. All, do you see how that works? Yeah. Or even an employee working for a boss that's so generous and kind, and man, he's not belittling. He he doesn't yell and scream and break things, but he's he's you know he's smart. He he disciplines himself. There's healthy physical boundaries here. Yeah. That that's. What is this? What's happening? Oh, I met Jesus. Yeah. You, you see how that can happen? Yeah. And in the marketplace, you're with people on an average of 40 to 50 hours a week. You know, you're with people in a church setting for two hours, probably at the most, maybe three, maybe on a Wednesday night, or if you have a little small group, and that's it. But in the marketplace, you get the life. That's life. You know, Billy Graham, one of the things he said as he near the end of his life is he said, I believe the next Great Awakening will be spurred, and I'm paraphrasing this, in, in the marketplace. I believe it'll take place in the marketplace. And so Jason and I are like, okay, we want to be a part of that. A decade after leaving baseball, their real estate business ventures were thriving, and there were incredible opportunities for them in the marketplace. They could easily see how God was using their work in the business sector to have an impact on the kingdom. They also had some very exciting ministry opportunities, including founding Cities for Life, a pro-life ministry in Charlotte, and in 2012, conceiving and organizing Charlotte 714, a rally of 9,000 pastors and believers praying for repentance and revival in America. But then, out of nowhere, they received a phone call about hosting their own reality TV show. And that would begin a long chain of events, ultimately forcing them to make yet another choice between God's kingdom and the world's. By 2012, a production company said, hey, we see you guys online. We see your families. Would you guys like to uh, put together a, uh, a sizzle clip that we could take to Los Angeles to pitch to some networks? So they went to LA. And now in the spring of 2013, we got an offer from TLC. So this offer from TLC comes in. They want us to uh, really talk about business and family and real estate and just all kinds of stuff to um, 
basically they they called it twinning, twinning where yeah teach people to win win at life you know and of course our biblical principles are the center of everything that we do and they didn't want us opening our bible on this on the episodes but they definitely wanted our principles and it's funny because we say everybody loves the fruit of christianity but sometimes they reject the root yeah and you don't get the fruit without the root yeah or you may get fruit for a moment but it's just it's rotten yeah so because it doesn't last. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So Jason and I, um, we're negotiating now with TLC. And then out of the blue HGTV, the general manager actually called our cell phones and said, listen, we heard you and your brother were signing with TLC and we want to make you guys an offer. So we start negotiating and then HGTV says, okay, we want six one-hour episodes. We're, we're going to bypass the pilot. So they paid us a ton of money. And, and then started bringing endorsements in. I mean, it was crazy. We couldn't believe just what, what kind of offer the HGTV actually gave us. Our agents that we had hired out of Beverly Hills said in 32 years of their agency, they had not seen, they'd only seen one time an offer that size of for unproven talent. So we knew HG's putting their money where their mouth is. I think they're really going to uh, establish a pretty significant show, which in our minds was simply another platform to glorify the Lord. You know, at first we thought it was Major League Baseball, now all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is the real big leagues. Everything was running smoothly for the Benham's TV show until HGTV started running their background checks on them and discovered several instances of their public support for biblical values, including God's design for marriage. And I remember getting a phone call from our production company. HG's really excited to have you guys on board, but they want to know one thing for the record. Are you guys anti-gay? That was what they asked. And they said anti-gay, right? They Using said that those terminology. exact words. And um, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. But, you know, in today's day and age, to be pro something, if you're not if you're not pro all the stuff on the left, then you have to be anti everything else. You have to be anti-person. And so anyway, nothing could be further from the truth, but I kind of did feel a little scared there because I didn't want to lose this opportunity to to have a show. And and yet at the same time, God gave me the right words to say. I said, not anti-anything, we're pro-Jesus, which makes us pro-Bible. And we talk about the boundaries of God so that it will yield God's blessings. And if you remove boundaries, then blessings are replaced with burdens. And I just kind of had this little conversation with her about why it is that we talk about pro-life, why it is that we talk about marriage. She's, you know, of course, through the course of the conversation, there's, she's, she's saying things like, there's a lot of pastors out there that don't even talk about this stuff. Of course, we understand why, because they could, you know, lose part of their congregation and when it's, you're, it's very unpopular. I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, not the thing that you talk about because it's right. a really sticky kind of topic. And when your income, your influence, and your image is determined on people liking you, well, then you won't talk about certain things. And so anyway, um, we got off the phone, and I felt really good about it. David did too, and, and yet we didn't hear anything back from them for about two weeks. And we thought that they probably didn't like the response that they gave and and so David and I tried to figure out some way to finagle things and and try to save our show so we wrote this email we didn't send it but we wrote this email to HG that basically said look we'll be quiet about our faith in public when we're on these shows that you guys are going to book us on but not like you know around our own sphere and uh, essentially that was a, a cop out we were being operating completely out of the wrong spirit the fear of man and a man pleasing spirit 
instead of the fear of God. And uh, and so we did. We never sent that email. We actually sent it to a spiritual mentor of ours who actually rebuked us. And David and I knew in that moment that we were operating out of a man-pleasing spirit, and we repented and asked God to forgive us. We never sent that email to HGTV. And yet God knew what he was doing because he knew that he was setting us up to get fired. He knew that was coming and we would have to stand bold. Yeah. But he had to break us first. Yeah. Boldness apart from brokenness makes a bully. Mm. And that's why we titled our latest book, Bold and Broken. Because boldness apart from brokenness makes a bully, but brokenness apart from boldness makes a bystander. That's where a lot of people in the church find themselves. And where David and I found ourselves when we wrote that email was we were willing to be a bystander. We were broken over our own sins. Yes, we were humble, and we believed that you know, and we knew that we were Christians and we were saved and we loved Jesus. But we weren't being bold in that moment. What God wants is for you to be bold on the foundation of brokenness, and when you do that, you become a bridge that connects God and the people who are disconnected from Him. And so, God wanted us to become a bridge between heaven and earth, which is the very answer to the prayer that we pray when we say your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's not just a prayer it's about participation and so you only do that through boldness and brokenness combined and god taught us that lesson right then and there in that moment when we were cowardly yeah we learned that the secret to courage is first recognizing your inner coward and then allowing the holy spirit to unleash your inner lion god had to get us to a point where we recognized that we are just cowards and apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. A couple weeks after that, after David and I wrote that email and of course didn't send it, HG reached out to us and said, Hey, are you gonna sign with us or what? You know? And basically they are like, Hey, we we believe like you guys do, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And, uh, you know, granted, there's probably executives there that don't, but by and large, HG, you know, it's a Southern company, you know, in Tennessee, sure. Knoxville, Tennessee. And there's a lot of good, good church going folks that work there. And so we, we met a lot of them and really like a lot of them. And, uh, and so we ended up signing with them and we started filming and six weeks into a, a 10 week film shoot, five weeks into a 10 week film shoot, HG called and said, Hey, you know, the advertisers are really excited about your show and all this, but we got a group called Glad. They're really not happy that we're going to bring you guys on. And they started telling us about all your anti-women and anti-gay you know, gay and all this stuff. And we told them that's just a narrative. It's not true. You guys have sold tens of thousands of houses nationwide, and you don't do that by discriminating against anybody. We had sold houses to gay people, and we'd never discriminate against anybody. And, uh, and so... HG said, we stuck up for you, you know, and we're good to go. David and I are like, well, that's great, and we appreciate that, you know, because that's what the church is supposed to do, And even though HG's not the church, but that's a good example for the church. It's like, you know, take take the hard stand, even if it costs you something. We told them, Glad's probably not going to go away. And sure enough, they didn't. We got a call about a week later, and they said, these guys are really mad. Really? <laughs> they are not going away. Yeah. So we're, we're going to just call them and tell them, leave us alone. We're going to keep you guys. Next morning, we wake up, and on HGTV's Facebook page, it says we're review reviewing the Benham Brothers show. And what happened was when Glad got the response back from HG that they were sticking with us, they tapped their group Right Wing Watch, which, I've heard of them, yeah, yeah. It's, it's another activist group that wrote this false story on my brother and I and my dad. And, 
And uh, you know, that's it's they use some some facts, but then they wrapped them in wrong contexts, and they basically created this awesome narrative in terms of how bad we were. When I say awesome, they did a really good job writing it. Yeah. And but it was bad. It was awful. It was smear. It was fake news before the term even existed. And HG honestly thought the world was caving in. They're like, holy cow, we can't handle this onslaught. So they called us and told us they were canceling the show. That was it. Just like that. Yeah, man. One moment you're going to be reality TV stars, the next moment. Literally in less than a 12-hour period. Now that a national media spotlight was pointed directly at the Benham brothers, they had another choice to make. Should they withdraw from the uncomfortable heat of the limelight and protect their business image by hunkering down until everything passed over? Or should they risk their marketplace status and embrace the platform that they were thrust upon for believing in God's design for life and marriage, and use that as an opportunity to boldly proclaim what the Bible clearly taught about those areas? The decision was clear. From that point forward, two months after that, we had gone on 200 one-on-one interviews, talking on all the biggest shows. And we knew at that point we weren't going to back down. We had already been broken, just like Peter. You know, Peter in Acts 4, when he stood out there boldly, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, even though he could have been killed yeah. at that time, yeah. what gave him that boldness? What gave him the boldness was that brokenness that he experienced when he denied Jesus just months before, yeah. or I should say weeks before. Yeah, And so that's what God did to us, Yeah, that he broke us first. We had our Peter moment, and we heard the rooster crow. We repented, and then God put us in a situation to where we were bold. We knew we were being bold, and we wanted to be bold, and we didn't care a lick of at that point what anybody thought of us. Yeah, we even had Christian ministries back away from us. We had our Christian publisher back away from us. Wow! And I didn't care. I didn't care at all because God had already broken us. And it's just an amazing, freeing thing when you've been broken. Yeah, it's an amazingly freeing thing when the thing that God has put into your hand and that per- dream that you're pursuing, that platform that you have that provision that you've got when you hold it with an open hand. Yeah. And you're like, God, you can take this in, you can put it, take it away or put it back in, you can do whatever you want. Either way, I'm doing your thing, Yeah, not my thing. Yeah. I bet in hindsight, you must, you guys must be so glad you didn't send that email because probably Glad still would have sent the email. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, of course. Yeah, they it's would. just the way that it works. You, know, you, know. you can't pander. Yeah. You yeah. just stand because either, either way they're coming. You yeah. have fear or you have faith. That you, you don't have both. But that's where David and I are telling pastors today, like, look, the ones who aren't talking about the, and I'm saying this in quotes, the hot topics, you know, and, and even, it, but you won't talk about the hot topics, but you'll do a, a lecture series to Christians on how we shouldn't talk about the hot topics. It's like, oh, you're really bold there, but and you'll preach some popcorn sermons that way. But we tell them, it's coming for you anyway. You wait until you are mandated by law to marry two men together or two women or a woman and her computer yeah, or a man and his dog. You wait until you're mandated. And people are like, oh, that's so stupid. That'll never happen. You wait. If we don't stand now, you know, like a, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. What does that verse tell you? It tells you that righteous men are not to give way. It tells that we are to be a brick wall that stands in the way of any evil that would then come in. And, and, and if a righteous man who's somebody in right relationship with God, so we're not talking about unsaved people here, you become a muddied spring or a polluted well. Can you imagine what a polluted well would be like? 
You know, I mean, I've got a well at my house, and we dr- I drink the water right out of that thing. Can you imagine if it was polluted? All the people that that's taking in from that polluted well is getting sick. Yeah. They're going to end up getting sick. Yeah. So you're a pastor that's not standing against evil. The people that you're feeding every Sunday are going to get sick. Yeah. And it's going to happen, and it's going to be on your watch, and you're going to be responsible. Yeah. In the years since their TV show fell apart, the Benham brothers have continued to grow their businesses. They also write books, host a podcast, and speak frequently, both about business and ministry. But as we wrapped up our interview, they wanted to share about one last project they're very excited to be involved with. We also are very much involved with an organization called Love Life. Right now, it's a Charlotte-based pro-life ministry that mobilizes the churches, mobilizes evangelical churches for prayer walks at local abortion clinics. Very peaceful and loving, but at the same time has a connection component where you can do some sidewalk counseling if you would like and get training for that adoption, fostering, um, being a part of a mentor network if a mother chooses life and they need a mentor to throw a baby shower for her and to really just help her through the whole process, even take you to prenatal visits and all these other things. It is an it is phenomenal. This thing has grown so fast, and we helped start it uh, just a few years ago, three years ago, uh, with another entrepreneur whose name is Justin Reeder. So my brother and I and Justin Reeder uh, kind of kicked this thing off here in Charlotte, and it's just grown. We have now we have over fifty thousand believers have actually walked and prayed. We oh, have over three hundred families in our mentor network. So we're talking hundreds of mothers choosing life, are now have mentors walking alongside them, bringing them into their homes. It's just, it's really amazing what we're seeing. We're working as an organization with the Department of Social Services. Just in Charlotte, we have almost nine hundred kids in the foster system. Just Charlotte proper and. We're, we're having our families sign up to start doing fostering and adoption, and we got 45 families signed up already, which is, that's significant, because yeah. the church so often, we can be all upset about the social ills that we see, or welfare, and all these other things. Well, how about we just step in and start getting involved? How about we cross the street and get down into the ditch where the brokenness is? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I really appreciate both of you guys just being willing to come and share your stories. Um, awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah, thank it. you, man. The Benham Brothers have a great testimony of being bold in the face of adversity, not caving in to popular opinion, but standing on the Word of God and proclaiming His truth, even when it means that their dreams would be destroyed. Jason put it so well when he explained that being broken and having your dreams taken away actually can free you to follow the will of God. For the Benham brothers, they had to let go of their dream of playing in Major League Baseball or having a national reality TV show. But the freedom that they found was so much sweeter. I found Jason and David's testimony very encouraging and convicting. I need to hold my plans with an open hand and ask God to help me follow His plans instead. When it feels that my dreams have been crushed, All I need to do is rest and know that God has the very best for me, no matter how confusing it may seem. God simply wants me to make the choice to trust and follow Him. To learn more about the Benham Brothers, visit our website, compelledpodcast.com, and look up this episode. We'll include links to their books, websites, podcasts, and other materials. We'll also be giving away an autographed copy of their book, Whatever the Cost. You can enter our drawing and find all of those resources at our website, which again is compelledpodcast.com. 
If you enjoyed listening to our story today and can't wait a whole week to listen to next week's episode, then you can actually skip ahead by joining Compelled as a monthly member. And for the rest of the season, you'll get access to each week's episode one week early. And you'll be helping us continue sharing these powerful stories. Get started by clicking the button at the top of our website that says become a member. Also, another great way that you can support Compelled is by sharing this episode with friends that you think would be blessed by it. Word of mouth is the number one way that people find our stories, so every little bit helps. We have an easy to use tool at our website that makes it really simple to share episodes with your friends. And to show our gratitude for helping us spread these stories, we have some special gifts we'd like to send your way. When you refer three friends to the show, you'll get a collectible sticker. 10 friends, you get a coffee mug and all the way up to a complete New Testament scripture journal set from Crossway Publishing. Get started by clicking the share button at the top of our website. Again, that's at compelledpodcast.com. This episode was produced by me and my wife, Sarah Hastings. Our editor is Zach Fowler. Our production intern is Ethan Adams. Our episode summary was written by Jace Bauer. And our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Ficchino. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Julian Weber, a regular father from suburban America who had everything the American dream could offer. A loving wife, four children, a beautiful home, a great job, and even leadership in his church. But when his identity was stripped away, his world quickly fell apart. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. It was a time when I was really trying to take my life into my own hands, and I lost all hope. Like, I didn't want to live with myself any longer. By early 2012, I was sitting in a bathtub with a butcher knife at my wrist. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.